from KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. COVID-19 has turned all of our lives upside down. Many businesses are permanently closed. Job security is a thing of the past, and many are feeling isolated and lonely. It has also left many more vulnerable to stress, depression, and even to suicide. Approximately 4,500 Californians lose their lives to suicide each year, and experts say that the rate rises in times of crisis. Coming up, we'll talk about why it's normal to be feeling stressed right now, how to deal with higher than normal anxiety, and where to get help if you're feeling like you can't cope. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. The coronavirus pandemic has many people feeling isolated in their homes, detached from loved ones, and anxious about their livelihoods, and all of that is taking a major toll on mental health. The U.S. suicide rate rose after the 2008 recession, and experts warn that vulnerable individuals are more at risk of suicide during periods of crisis. In this hour, we're going to talk about how to address anxiety and depression, when to seek help, and what services are available for individuals and families struggling to cope. Joining us, let me welcome Narjis Ahari Dillon, Executive Director of Crisis Support Services of Alameda County. Good morning to you. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having us. Glad to have you. Also glad to have Dr. David Spiegel, who directs the Center on Stress and Health. He's professor and associate chair of psychiatry at Stanford Medical, uh, excuse me, at Stanford Medicine, and also co-founder of Reverie Health. Welcome, David Spiegel. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here with you. Glad to have you with us and also glad to have Juan Acosta. Let me welcome Juan Acosta, who's assistant manager of the California Peer Run Warm Line and youth mental health advocate. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome to all of you. Glad to have you. And let me begin, if I may, with you, Narja Sahori, Dylan. Um, let's talk about, well, first of all, I think it's, it goes without saying that uh, all stressors have been magnified during this pandemic. But what's it like and what's it been like since shelter in place in terms of support services of Alameda? It's been a big uptick, I assume. And definitely, we've noticed an increase in the number of callers. And more than that, we've noticed an increase in the degree of distress that our callers are in. So for example, callers who've previously needed the crisis line as a way to stabilize their day and receive some support might now be in a higher state of crisis because of additional stressors like economic hardships that you named at the top of the show, as well as the impact of racial injustice being magnified right now. Those are themes that are repeatedly coming up on our crisis lines. People being worried about their basic needs like making rent as well as food security. And one of the things that we know in the world of mental health and suicide prevention is that people's basic needs are so tied closely with their ability to stay mentally well. Um, and those are the things that we're noticing, especially as the pandemic stretches on, um, people's ability to cope has decreased and they're needing additional support. Well, I know that generally suicide data is difficult to come by. The statistics are hard to come by. Uh, it's often difficult because of the stigma and because well, sometimes it's impossible to determine whether it's a suicide, but there's been, yes. I, I, has there been higher ideation and higher suicide calls? Have they increased to a great degree? 
Yeah, we notice at times that when I said that the stressors are higher and people are reporting um, more hopelessness, which is one of our primary risk factors and something that we're always listening for. And that's what I think people can be listening for and their loved ones as well when somebody is indicating a sense of hopelessness, making statements like, what's the point? Or um, this will never end, or I won't be around for the end of it anyway. Those kinds of more passive statements about giving up um, on things improving are definitely a sign for us to check in with someone and could be a sign um, for people to check in with their loved ones as well. So let's talk about what you tell people or what you are able to inform people or enlighten them about when it comes to coping skills. I'm talking uh, about generally, but also resources, particularly for family members. And so in terms of coping skills, one of the strategies is to help people connect to their own past resilience. So we might often ask someone to share an experience in the past where they've overcome a major stressor or they've had a hard time and have gotten through it and asking people how they've gotten through it. This is an exercise that we can do with our loved ones as well as for ourselves, which is really thinking back to other times when we've overcome a challenge and think about how did we get through it? What were the resources that were helpful to us at the time? Was it talking to loved ones? Was it spiritual? Spirituality? Was it activity? Was it finding a sense of purpose? Um, that ability to tap into our past resilience is something that sometimes we can't do for ourselves, but in conversation with someone else um, can be possible and can begin to provide hope for people and remind them that they've gone through difficult things before, even though the pandemic, of course, is a very unusual um, situation. As for families, we do get families and loved ones calling us concerned about people in their lives and wanting to know how to support people. One of the ways that I think is helpful is modeling help seeking. So that might look like maybe calling with someone to a crisis line or the California peer warm line or one of the other resources available. That way that initial barrier to picking up the phone that can feel insurmountable for someone who's going through a lot of anxiety, depression or other stressors. So having someone by their side, having it be a conference call can really get them through that initial hurdle and um, give them hope and make them realize that there's help out there. Free of charge crisis lines are available through every county in California, uh, the kind that you have set up in Alameda? Definitely. All the Bay Area counties as well as California have access. We would encourage people to um, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number, which is the 800-273-8255 number, because by calling that number, people will get routed to their nearest crisis line um, because it gets routed to us based on our phone um, area codes. And the other resource that I think is helpful is, in addition to the um, California Peer Warm Line that Juan will speak about later, is we have a hotline specifically dedicated to people who work in healthcare settings who are experiencing increased distress right now. And that's available to everyone in California as well. And that's at 510-420-3222. And it's not limited to physicians, but it's um, also for janitorial staff, administrative staff, because we know they're really witnessing a lot of distress right now. And um, their well-being is something that I worry about regularly. Narjan Sohari Dillon, again, is Executive Director of Crisis Support Services of Alameda County. And Dr. David Spiegel is Director of the Center on Stress and Health, uh, Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry at Stanford Medicine. And David Spiegel, uh, we're talking about toxic stress and anxiety and depression. Anxiety and depression are up about three times more during the pandemic from what, what I've been reading. But one of the, well, demographic groups that's been the most hard hit have been young people. And a lot of these young people, for example, are very, uh, shall we say, 
uh, concerned about calling these crisis lines because they can be overheard. They're in their home or they're in their apartment or wherever they're uh, quarantining. Uh, I'm wondering if you have some direct advice for young people, particularly in this crisis time. Um, sure, Michael. Yeah, there was a study at University College London among 72,000 people examined about seven times. And it turned out that people in age 18 to 29 are the most emotionally affected uh, by the COVID situation, followed by people at middle age. And interestingly, the oldest people seem to be the least distressed, surprisingly enough, by the epidemic. Um, I, one way to think of it is that the peak period of social connection in the human life cycle is youth. It's young people, teenagers and people in their 20s who are naturally very social, who are trying to make social connections, who are trying to establish relationships that can go on for life. And so it is particularly disruptive and distressing for them. And on top of that, uh, if you start to feel anxious and depressed, you start to feel bad about yourself. Um, the absence of social input can be especially stressful. So I would advise young people to take their distress seriously, make connections in ways they can, and seek help if they're going from being merely sad or depressed to feeling hopeless, helpless, and worthless, and thinking about harming themselves. The danger is higher, not only because the situation is stressful, but because the availability of social support has been reduced. And can you say something, uh, Narja Sohari, Dylan mentioned uh, the greater stress on people of color. Uh, disproportionate effect on people of color is certainly something that we're well aware of. Black and brown people, uh, in fact, uh, Rhea Boyd, who's a um, urgent care doctor down there in Palo Alto, where you are, uh, I was listening to her on a Zoom call just the other night, and she was saying black people live without sanctuary. A pretty strong statement, but certainly one that resonates, uh, particularly in the time that we're living. Any particular advice and light that you can shed on the situation for them, for people of color? Well, you know, we, as we know from the Black Lives Matter movement um, and from all that's been going on, that there are still things that keep minority people and black people from feeling at home in a country that their families may have lived in for hundreds of years. And the kind of scapegoating and mistreatment that they have undergone only reinforces a sense of not being worth much, not really belonging. And so the combination of that underlying static with the current separation from everyday roles and things that make us feel good uh, just compounds the sense of mistreatment and uh, can be very damaging. It's particularly damaging if you don't see it for what it is, if you experience it as something wrong with you, something you did wrong, rather than as part of a problem. And that's why I think the movement to address social injustice has been especially important now because any baseline sense of separation or not being accepted is compounded if you don't see it for what it is. And so I hope that people will connect, uh, people um, will connect uh, with other people who are having similar kinds of feelings, that they will reach out for mental health support, particularly if they're starting to feel hopeless, helpless and worthless and thinking about harming themselves. We are discussing anxiety and depression and when and where to seek help. And uh, we do want to hear from you, our listeners. Let me give out the number and you may want to weigh in here on what questions you have, but also observations that you have about how the pandemic is affecting your mental health. You can give us a call now and I invite you to do that. Our toll free number is available. The number to call is 866-733-6786. 
The number again, 866-733-6786. You can join us at that number. You can also join us by going on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or emailing us, forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Juan Acosta, who is assistant manager of the California Peer Run Warm Line and a youth mental health advocate. And Juan Acosta, let me follow up on you in terms of uh, this concern that many of us have about young people in all this. You're offering peer support, and you're offering peer support for the really the whole state of California. How does that work exactly, especially if you could address the warm line, which is right at the center of your operation? Yeah, so the California warm line is a statewide immediate free non-emergency support line, and it's open to all California residents. You know, youth is a main concern right now because they're being tasked with some major adjustments, which include online learning and more. Uh, you mentioned earlier that some youth don't feel comfortable calling into some lines because of privacy concerns or because they don't want to be overheard. And the California Warm Line also offers a chat service that is open to all of California as well. Well, I know you've been an advocate not only for youth but for the LGBT community. And maybe talk about the kind of struggles well, that you've gone through personally or that you see others uh, who are pretty much uh, uh, in the same boat you're in in terms of the impact of COVID. Yeah, so, you know, as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, I went through some of my own struggles growing up. And now youth struggle to cope with these ongoing challenges brought on by COVID, but they are also now processing news of violent murders and injustice and the country's reaction and impact. And many of them have really intense emotions, which are real and valid, but they don't know how to process these emotions and have no support, which is something I experienced myself. And, you know, just reaching out and being provided with resources is so important because we know that by research that youth are willing to utilize resources if they're presented with the opportunity to do so. So being able to not only promote but provide the resources to youth is important and that could spur uh, an effect that the youth could just give each other the resources, you know, have each other communicate with one another. You know, friends oftentimes tell each other things and feel more comfortable talking to one another than talking to their own family in some cases, especially if they come from a family that doesn't speak often about mental health. Well, you're talking about the importance of social connection at a time of so-called social distancing. It's more difficult because you have to do it online to a great extent. But what other resources are available to young people? Can you talk to that? Yeah, so you mentioned LGBTQ youth and that, you know, the Trevor Project has an amazing uh, line that you could call in as well as when you call the warm line we can provide your resources in your own community we have a database throughout the state of california that is able we're able to just provide resources say if you're in yolo county we're able to provide resources that might be available in yolo county so just by giving a call we're able to connect you with numerous resources in your own community and if I could go back to you, uh, David Spiegel, let, let's talk a bit about just ways of avoiding crisis, uh, prophylactics, if you will. Uh, there are a lot of people who have food insecurity, they're in debt, they're losing sleep. Uh, there's all kinds of domestic uh, violence that's going on and certainly more use or abuse of alcohol and drugs. Uh, how to avoid, I mean, if there's solid advice for avoiding those kind of crises and what they lead to, such things as addiction and domestic violence. Um, I wish you'd asked me a, a hard question, uh, Michael. Um, it is it is very difficult, um, but I would say the way to think of it is to cope not in all or none, but in more or less terms. So 
when you're surrounded by a world uh, that has suddenly pulled the rug out from all of us, where you feel like we're in a bad sci-fi movie, um, find the things you can control um, and, and do that. So you've lost a lot of control, but not all of it. If someone is abusive or threatening, um, use whatever communication systems you have to either uh, to get the help you need to get protection and to stay away, to recognize that the threat is, a pro is the primary problem. Do things that help your body and yourself to manage what you can manage. So the, the suggestion earlier about thinking about times when you were resilient in the past is a good suggestion. That is, you're not completely helpless. Our, our ability to control things is much reduced right now, but it's not gone. So take time to think about what you've done in the past that was adaptive, or just think of a past vacation or trip that you had that made you feel good. Give yourself a few minutes for that. Uh, get rest, do what your grandmother told you to do. Eat well, sleep well, and get exercise. Those are things you can control, but it's also wise to recognize when you're, you're beyond being able to manage it for yourself and reaching out to these community resources, to mental health resources, especially if your thinking is going from just worrying about things we are all now worried about to focusing on what's wrong with yourself. I'm just overwhelmingly anxious. I'm hopeless, helpless, and worthless. I don't deserve to live. When you're thinking that way, you need help from outside. You can't handle it by yourself, and mental health resources are crucial. And let me go back, uh, if I may, to you, Narja Zahori, Dylan, from talk about these resources more. Most of the callers you get, we've been putting a lot of emphasis on youth, understandably, but I believe are middle-aged. The uh, greatest impact in some ways is on older adults in terms of the loneliness and depression. How do you tap into community, to community support? I mean, the psych wards are open, but there's a lot of fear of going in those places, especially now because of COVID-19. And also a lot of people don't feel comfortable with telehealth. Definitely, Michael. One of the things that um, is our goal at the crisis line and many crisis lines is to really prevent people from being at the stage where they would have to go into a psychiatric emergency room. Our hope um, with every caller is to really de-escalate the situation, increase their sense of connectedness, because that's one of the primary protective factors against suicide, create a safety plan as a way to keep them in the community. And when we talk about supports, one of the things that I think it's important to keep in mind is the concept of natural supports. And this is um, supports that are available in our community as opposed to mental health resources, because I really want to um, acknowledge the role stigma plays in help seeking and also the availability of things like therapy for everyone. That's not something that everyone has access to. So when we think about people's natural supports, that could be people like friends, family, neighbors, community group, um, a spiritual community, if the person's connected to a work environment or volunteering. It could also be things that give someone a sense of positive identity. Like David said, we worry when somebody is um, assuming that they're the problem, especially at a time right now. Um, so thinking about things that give someone a sense of efficacy, and that could be um, arts, gardening, um, things that feel reachable and accessible right now in a safe way. So we always are brainstorming with people about things that might bring them a little bit of joy, because sometimes when we're stuck in a moment of darkness, we have a really hard time actually um, remembering a time we didn't feel this way. And the role of the crisis line, as well as if somebody's reaching out to a loved one, is really to help someone see beyond this moment of um, darkness and remind them of times that they have had joy and um, reconnect them to those times if possible. Um, the reason I bring up natural supports is sometimes um, if therapy is the 
first um, kind of solution we bring up for people that might that might not resonate with them. So we always want to be mindful of where the person is coming from and um, what kinds of help seeking they might be initially comfortable with and start with that. And let me remind you, our listeners, if you have something you want to ask or say, in fact, I'd certainly like to hear about some of you who have had some success with coping skills during these difficult times and challenging times. And you can join us at our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. Here's Terry from Larkspur. Terry, good morning. Hi, um, Michael. Thank you. Um, I actually have gone through a breakup in the last few months, which I could see coming down through this. Everything was sort of blamed on me as we were locked in a house together. I felt like I could see this person spinning and turning everything into me, monster COVID girl, because I was the person there. And I had to leave my home where I was living and, and during the breakup. And I just feel this certain terror in my life because I feel like I'm a pretty resilient person, but that everything added and this uh, and a breakup and trying to find a home during all this, I almost feel like, I'm just in a state of terror now. Let me ask you uh, to weigh in on this, Nargis, if you could. If she's calling you and she's saying, I'm in a state of terror, what do you tell her in terms of resources, where to go, how to, have, how to handle it? Yeah, I think we would start by thanking Terry for calling in, and I thank you, thank you right now. Um, it takes a lot of courage to ask for help and to tell our story. Um, if this was on the crisis line, I would really um, give her some time to continue and tell me about um, what happened and the ways in which it impacted her. Because sometimes having someone else witness our pain is a way that the pain can can decrease for us. And the other thing I would let her know, and I want her to hear right now, is that she's not alone. Um, she's not alone in the fact that this has um, been detrimental to her relationship. She's not alone in feeling that sense of um, terror. So these feelings are not a sign that you're not able to get through this difficult time, but it is just um, a sign that this is a difficult time. And I, I like to distinguish between those two things because sometimes we can feel like um, I should be able to get over this. And that kind of self-talk just, we, we want to encourage people to be kinder to themselves. Give yourself the same kindness you would give to a friend if they called you with the same problem. Yeah, do, do be kind and generous to yourself, Terry. And thank you so much for calling. And I wish you the best of luck. Uh, I hope you see the other side of this and get to it sooner rather than later. And uh, we're coming up on a break here, but a quick question for you on, uh, Marie wants to know, the younger generation will text more often than they will call a crisis line, ask for help. Uh, what about texting? In fact, Shannon is saying, if they're uh, another listener, if they're being concerned about being overheard on the hotline, what about texting? Juan, can I get you to weigh in on that quickly? Yeah, I know there's a crisis text line where uh, people can text in, as well as the warm line offers the messaging chat option. So people can definitely utilize those resources if they just want more privacy or if they feel more comfortable just typing it out. And we are coming up on a break, but when we return, we'll hear more from you, our listeners. Uh, and we have some of those resources on our website. I hope you will avail yourselves of them, and we'll continue with our three guests and with your calls and emails. Feel free to join us by phone, 866-733-6786, or on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. You're listening to Forum on KQED Public Radio. I'm Michael Krasny, and we're discussing anxiety and depression and when and where 
To seek help, our guests are Juan Acosta, Assistant Manager of the California Peer Run Warm Line and a youth mental health advocate, and Dr. David Spiegel, who directs the Center on Stress and Health, Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry at Stanford Medicine, and Narja Zahori Dillon, who is Executive Director of Crisis Support Services of Alameda County. And uh, Narja, if I go back to you for a second here, uh, let's just talk about, well, how to talk about problems of this sort. When is it best to actually broach a subject. If you have a parent, for example, calling in with concern about a child, it can be very scary, not only for the parent to talk about, well, the concerns and anxieties a parent may have about the child, but vice versa. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great question. And um, the kind of steps I'm about to provide, I would say, apply to parents worried about their children, adult children, as well as people who are worried about their partners or loved ones. There's kind of five steps that we think about when we think about how to support someone who might be nearing a suicidal crisis or who might be in a suicidal crisis. The most important piece is to ask them about it, ask them if they've been thinking about dying by suicide, ask them if they're feeling suicidal right now. Though it seems so scary to say those words, to our loved one. And people often report that it's a relief when someone asks them about it because it really opens the door to a conversation that is so hard to have with people we care about. Um, people who call our line often say that they're worried to bring up their suicidal thinking to their loved ones because they don't want to worry them or burden them. So when somebody else asks, it really opens the door to that conversation. The next step is to be there for them and um, to not just ask the question and walk away, but to really um, demonstrate that we're going to be there in an ongoing way because we know that sense of connectedness is a really important piece. And um, keeping them safe, that's really important, asking if they've already done something um, for example, if they've already taken any pills, if they've already acquired any material that they have thought about using to end their life, um, that conversation is really important in a way to start to think about safety and start to maybe ask them to put some of those things away or help you um, have you hold them. Um, helping them connect. So as I said, calling with them to a crisis line, calling a physician if they have a physician that they trust, um, calling another loved ones. I would always say that if the circle of support can be a little bigger, that tends to be helpful. So in terms of parent-child relationship, is there an aunt that they trust? Is there an uncle? Is there another parent? Um, so that the person really begins to not feel as alone in their pain. And the last piece is to follow up. This is not a one-time conversation. Um, if we have someone who's relatively safe right now saying, okay, we're going to talk about this more tomorrow morning. Um, let's figure this out together. So really using language that suggests the person is not in this alone can be really impactful to someone who's in a state of crisis because a state of crisis really leaves people feeling like no one would understand what they're going through. So I really encourage that kind of we language of we'll figure this out. We're going to get help. We're in this together. Very good and useful advice. Thank you for that, Narjus. Narjus Ohari Dolan, again, is Executive Director of the Crisis Support Services of Alameda County. And David Spiegel, I'm going to go back to you with a question from Judy, who says, when should parents be concerned about their tweens' mental health? So many of our kids, particularly in that 10 to 13-year-old age group, are spending the majority of their waking hours on screens. What are the signs that we should look for in terms of depression and other mental health difficulties? Um, it it can sometimes be hard to tell because um, tweens often don't want to be as uh, still reliant on their parents as they are and being cut off from much of their social network and independence makes them feel even worse, makes them feel more like they're six years old instead of 12 years old. And so I would start out by um, acknowledging with the child 
that this is a tough time for everyone, that you're having a problem too. It isn't just them. Um, and that you understand uh, that they're missing their friends and missing that contact. What can we do to connect you as best we can? Uh, I think recognizing that it's a shared problem um, helps people not blame themselves so much for it, not go down that depressive rabbit hole thinking it's just me and nobody else would care about me if I disappeared. So, and, and sharing your own concern, as you heard from, from Nargis, you never make a person suicidal by raising the question. You can by ignoring the signs. People think if I do something to myself, nobody will notice or care. So making it something that it's a shared concern as a parent, as an adult, as well as a child can, can destigmatize it for the young person. Let me bring uh, Jim Cooler into this. Uh, and Jim Cooler is Assistant Deputy Director of Behavioral Health at the California Department of Healthcare Services. Jim Cooler, I welcome you to the forum program. Good morning. Good morning. I think uh, I'd like to find out from you more about resources and services that the state is offering, especially for low income folks. Well, thank you for asking. One of the things that is available is CalHOPE, which is our crisis counseling program funded by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And there is a toll-free phone number that is available that is 833-317-HOPE or 4673. Again, 833-317-4673. And there are peer counselors available there to be able to talk to people to help normalize the experience that they're having, knowing that we're all feeling stressed during this public health emergency. And there are resources available to connect. So it may be things around the food insecurities or housing insecurities or employment, but just generally that sense that we're all feeling out of sorts. And that's normal, and there are ways that we can help with that. Well, you mentioned FEMA money. I know that uh, Assembly Bill 2112 has been passed, and there's supposed to be more money coming, but a lot has been put on hold, and a lot of this money is just drying up. Uh, I'd like you to talk about the future of revenue uh, and particularly where it's going to come from. Well, the area that I'm most engaged in is, is working on the crisis counseling and working with federal resources, bringing them to California to complement the things that we are doing. So in the first phase of the disaster and the emergency, FEMA has provided $1.6 million to California. Uh, for the next nine months, we are negotiating with them, and we have a request for an additional $82 million to be able to provide crisis counseling, to do media, to increase awareness for the general public, and then also to invest in our school system so that we have more people on the front lines who can see and identify young people and families who are feeling stressed and get them the support that they need. Uh, I think our idea around who's on the front line and our first responders is expanding, that our teachers and our parents who are now teachers at home in distance learning situations are really on that front line of seeing the behavioral health despair, which is going to be coming our way if we don't do something about it. Jim Cooler, good to have you with us. Appreciate very much your being with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Jim Cooler, Assistant Deputy Director of Behavioral Health at the California Department of Health. And uh, we'll get his website on our website for those of you who want to avail yourselves of that. In the meantime, let's avail ourselves of some more callers. And Eric joins us from Sacramento. Eric, you're on. Good morning. 
Uh, yes, good morning. I uh, just happened to be driving and uh, heard your program, and I've had uh, really a trifecta. My father passed in November. Uh, my mother passed in May. Uh, I had a stroke in, in March. Um, well, I'm so sorry. It's, so, you, your life yeah. is like Job in the Bible almost. <laughs> Yes, that's how I feel sometimes. And uh, so I'm really having a, um, I guess I would call it a depression and um, uh, and some feelings of hopelessness. And uh, I basically, I was, I, went, you know, I was trying to, like, go to the pool, but the pool is limited. You can't, you know, get in sometimes because they only have 25 people per time going into the pool. Everything else is closed down. The gym's closed down. The uh, library's closed down. The movies, you can't go to the movies. So... It's been really hard, um, and I'm just trying to. What can I do? I just wrote down that number. I believe it was eight three 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 one seven four six seven three. I wrote that down. And I was, is there anything else, like any group sessions or anything that I can uh, go to to help me? Eric, can I ask your age? Oh, I'm uh, sixty-one. Yeah. Um, Narjus, can I go? This would be the kind of call you would get. And uh, again, uh, Eric, I'm sorry for all that you've gone through. It's uh, it sounds like it's been a very hard time. But you're just looking for somewhere to go beyond talking to yourself. I imagine, uh, Narjus, some thoughts. Yeah, definitely. So if the person is a resident in Alameda County, our center does have special grief services, both in a group setting as well as individual grief counseling. And other things I want to acknowledge is that grief and loss during COVID is additionally painful because some of the grief rituals that we rely on to kind of get us through a loss are not available to us, which is getting together with other people who might have known your, your mom or your, your parents, um, and as well as um, having that ritual of being able to um, potentially honor them in a cultural or spiritual way. So not having those rituals really makes grief additionally challenging. And I just want to name that. Um, if you're not in Alameda County, I would encourage you to, co to call your local resource. And there are grief groups if you belong to any kind of um, spiritual community, they might have grief groups as well. Local hospices have grief groups, and they're often free to community members who've lost the loved ones. Um, so grief is an area where there are a number of resources. The other resource that could be available for people is online groups, and this is not in the form of telehealth, they're not often moderated by a mental health professional, but it is really peer support around um, grief and loss. and um, Grief, like many other um, kind of life stressors, um, can really benefit from having a space to talk it out and having a space to tell the stories of the loved one's loss. So that's kind of the last thing I would bring up. If there's any opportunities to tell the stories of people who you have lost and who are so special to you um, through photos, making a video, writing um, a letter about them, um, those opportunities to intentionally honor their memory and honor what they meant to you. Um, though they can be initially painful, they can also bring some relief and really acknowledge the importance of the relationship. And we did a whole hour earlier uh, after the pandemic on rituals and how important and how necessary and vital they are and just the sort of things you're talking about, memorializing and writing and doing that sort of thing could at least alleviate some. But Eric, I wish you the best of luck, and I thank you for the call, and uh, hope you can find some counseling. Maddie, a listener, tweets, I'm an educator with youth, and one of the things I've learned in training is talking openly about suicide without panicking is vital. Asking someone if they are having trouble coping, getting information about whether or not they planned anything, and following up can save lives. 
And here's Elizabeth in Oakland joining us. Elizabeth, welcome. You're on the air. Uh, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, a little bit of an older generation as I'm a woman in my early 60s. And I, I just wanted to comment on how intense this experience is for us as um, mental health needs have gone up significantly. And for, for me, because I am older, um, it's actually harder work to sit in my home staying at staring at the same computer screen and to have to take one hat off the other hat on as opposed to me having the opportunity to go to my office um i do want to just comment um two comments as briefly as i can uh my experience because of increase of substance abuse and domestic violence is an increase in mobile mental health services would be really helpful i've and secondly about the previous caller um i want to Every county has an, an association of licensed clinical psychologists, generally always affiliated with the California Psychological Association. Um, I'm in Alameda County. That's Alameda County Psych Association, ACPA. Um, we have a free online uh, multi-session service to teach mindfulness and other stress reductions, and it is free. So thank you very much for taking my call. Well, thank you, calls. Elizabeth, and thank you for that additional resource that you brought to our attention. And uh, let me go back to uh, one of our guests on the panel here, Juan Acosta, who's, again, assistant manager of the California Peer Run Warm Line and a youth mental health advocate. And I'm interested in finding out from you, Juan, so when you discuss anxiety and depression uh, to help young people who are particularly feeling anxious, uh, what do you tell them? Yeah, uh well, first, you know, we were in a moment where we really need to be having intentional and proactive conversations. And, you know, we said follow up, and that's very important. And, you know, some children and some youth don't even know how to explain how they're feeling. They're just feeling different. So we really have to look out for signs and really be intentional when asking how they're doing and not have just passive conversations. Uh, there's different signs that one can notice in a child of their uh, more agitated or they're not sleeping as much, you could just ask if there's a deeper reasoning behind those actions. And just trying to just really normalize these conversations is important. As mentioned earlier, we're all collectively going through this right now. So having these intentional and proactive conversations is necessary. And you know, uh, David Spiegel, we had a listener who was saying that we don't have the leadership and we don't have a president that we can look up to and someone who can guide us and act as uh, perhaps a force in our lives uh, that we can trust. Um, I imagine in these difficult times, that's a problem for many people. Uh, unfortunately, Michael, it is that compounding the uh, effects of the, the virus, the pandemic, uh, is the fact that we can't trust the leadership uh, of the country to be interested in us rather than himself. And so that makes you feel sort of forced back on your own resources. Now, we've got we've seen that many of the states have stepped up to the plate and helped. Many of the counties have been fantastic in uh, enforcing um, uh, distancing and other protective events. But it is it is an additional stress not to feel that somebody up there is looking out for you. And I think, again, it's important that we see that for what it is, that we do what we can about it uh, to make sure that our democracy is preserved and we do what we can do to improve the management of the country. But at the same time, it also is a way of saying, 
the burden is even greater on me, but it's not my fault. And what I worry about the most is people who sink into despair, depression, and anxiety and, and, and start to feel that the problem is with them rather than all of the events that are going on in the world. So having a clear view of what the stressors are also helps you to organize yourself to take on what you can and better control those aspects of your life that you can. I would also mention, by the way, that telemedicine, one good thing that has come out of this mess is we have pivoted at Stanford almost entirely in psychiatry to doing telemedicine now. Many of our patients actually prefer it. And it is now possible to get good psychiatric evaluation and treatment and psychological treatment via telemedicine. I've been doing it, it works. And so there is another resource, even if we can't go to the places, we can get a lot of the care that previously was much harder to obtain. And let me read some tweets that are coming in. Uh, Tina tweets, uh, there's also the underlying grief we're all feeling with the loss of life as we knew it. This is part of what makes this time even harder as all the other grief piles up. And Joseph tweets, uh, my heart goes out to Eric, uh, the caller who called us before. Uh, Eric, uh, he, he says, feel free to message me. Uh, just talking to people can help. And he's uh, offering himself as someone happy to chat with you, which is very kind of him. I don't know how we could exactly set that up, but I thank Joseph for his tweet. And here's Carmen who tweets, when the COVID lockdown began, I immediately thought of how detrimental it would be to relationships. The necessary fixation on distancing as well as hyper-focus on other people's behaviors is a recipe for pain, emotional isolation, and misunderstanding. Pretty much conform with what you're hearing, Narjus, if I can go back to you. Yeah, and I think the pandemic has really intensified also relationship stressors. When we think about things that could be stressful in a relationship, um, often finances come into play as well as different um, kind of degrees of adherence right now to um, kind of the rules of the pandemic between between the partners or different levels of risk-taking comfort, um, as well as if one partner is is really trying to um, kind of use use this time to stay in and things like that while the other partner is not comfortable with that. A partner using substances can cause um, as a coping skill, but it can cause um, friction between people. Um, but really I would say the economic factor between partners is one of the primary things um, that comes up as well as parents. If people have a child together or they're caring for a child in their household, there's tremendous additional stressors that comes with that, with school closures, with childcare closures, with having to do um, homeschooling. I would say um, families trying to navigate how to respond to their children during this time, how much to tell them, and um, how to keep them safe and how to keep them compliant while the grown-ups keeping their jobs. I know that's something that is a tremendous stressor. In or forgive households. me, in many cases, having to care for an elderly parent or someone elderly who's in the home yeah. and needs caretaking as well. And again, yeah. Nardis Zohari Dillon is executive director of the Crisis Support Services of Alameda County. And uh, if you have something you want to add to this discussion, uh, you can join us at our toll-free number. It's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. Listeners are giving us good resources. Here's Patricia who emails Mission Hospice in San Mateo, offers a wonderful bereavement program to the community for free. The sessions now take place online. Just go to missionhospice.org. Also, writing and art classes are offered as a way 
to express and deal with grief. And here's Mike in San Rafael. Mike, good morning. Um, I was really moved by Eric's comments uh, about the loss of his parents and, and his own depression. And it just made me think of my situation fairly similar. And, and when I get into, you know, that place, what really helps me a lot, and I'm not trying to minimize the, the severity of, of the issue, but what really helps me is just to get out into nature and to find a place where I can walk ideally with a friend so that we can talk for an hour or two get exercise, get the heart rate going. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people who are depressed get stuck and they get stuck in their existing environment and, and it's hard for them to make that first move. And if they can just make the first move to go to a park, go to, you know, a, a state park, go to a beach, go somewhere. And, and in COVID, it's a little bit more difficult, but things are generally open now. It's just so therapeutic to get moving and talking with a friend and I, I just wanted to offer that as my recipe. For, it's a good for offer, and we thank you for it. It's certainly good advice. In fact, I was just thinking about Natalie Todd, who has been on the forum program and who KQED reporters have worked with, the UCSF psychologist, who says you really need to reach out to other people, particularly loved ones in this pandemic time, and also get outside uh, safely, of course, with physical distance, but find routines that you can rely upon and rituals that you can rely upon. and. Uh, also, she suggests limiting media consumption, which I think is pretty good advice. You get too much Corona news and it can sort of take over your uh, cerebral powers. Uh, stretch yourself uh, is another piece of advice from Dr. Todd. Let me uh, l read a comment from Julia, and I'll go to you on this, uh, David Spiegel. Julia says, more than anything, it's knowing that depression, melancholy, sadness, and anxiety are all part of the human condition. We're so used to immediate gratification that to feel extreme discomfort is frightening and unacceptable. I think Julia's got a point there. Yes, I, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, there's an old French saying, he who is laughing hasn't heard the bad news yet. Um, it is the I case. I thought that was Bertolt Brecht. <laughs> oh, maybe it was. Um, I think um, that we are used to having life so good, and many of us are now reflecting on how good it was before all this hit us, uh, that we think there's something unnatural about having periods of sadness and, and, and tragedy even in our lives. At the same time, again, it's the distinction between grieving real losses, facing real stressors, and beginning to feel overwhelmed and sinking into a kind of despair in which help of all kinds, the kinds people have talked about, diet, sleep, and exercise, uh, reaching out to friends, but also getting professional help if you're feeling overwhelmed uh, is, is really important so that you don't let yourself sink to a point where uh, you give up on yourself or you do things that are harmful to yourself. Let me go back to Juan Acosta. Juan, there's a tweet here from a listener named Tina who writes, my family lost my young brother right before the pandemic. There were moments of extreme pain and loneliness I dealt by validating my daily emotions and not dismissing them. Dealing with pain head on instead of sweeping it under the rug is important. Get help. This is good advice for young people. It's the kind of advice you give out on the warm line, isn't it? I mean, actually facing up to whatever emotionally you're feeling and realizing that those feelings are authentic and need to be felt. Yes, and it's so important that uh, she mentioned that, you know, oftentimes People think that by putting it in the back of your mind and compromise, like just putting it away is going to make it go away, but it's not true, you know, it'll come back and sometimes it'll be harder to deal with. So just really uh, talking about it and getting support and 
for the daily life, especially after a loss, is important to do in that moment because it's something that's impacting you. Even if you try to look away, it's important to stare at it and to just really seek help. And talk a little bit more, if you could, Juan, about the importance of peer support and how peers can talk to peers and the best ways for them to talk to other peers. Yeah, you know, peer support for me has been really important just because oftentimes, especially if you don't trust in a system or if there's a lot of intersectionality to you as a human, you might identify better by talking to people who have gone through similar experiences. And that's why I believe that peer support is very beneficial for many people, you know. People really enjoy talking to others who have gone through a similar situation or who are of the same color or who have the same sexuality because they know the struggles. And, you know, others might try to get some sort of idea of the struggle, but it's not the same as living it every day and have it be part of your identity. So that's why I believe peer support is really, really beneficial. And I'm wondering, uh, David Spiegel, if you could shed some light on a question from a listener named Maria who says, is there support also for people in higher education? Professors are often the first line in terms of helping students through this time. Are there resources to help teachers specifically? Do you know? Um, uh, I don't know of any uh, professional uh, consultations, but many uh, universities and school systems have psychologists who work with the system and who can be available. Certainly uh, at Stanford, we have student health services that can provide consultation about students who appear to be in trouble, and I would certainly avail myself of them. But it's not face-to-face -face anymore. It has to be, again, uh, telehealth, right? It does, but telehealth is not bad. You can get there quickly, and uh, it works pretty well. And Narjus, let me go back to you with a question from Stephen, who says, any advice for spouses living together who cannot agree on the level of risk that they are willing to be exposed to? It's a big question. You know, I, yeah. yeah, definitely. I recently read an article by um, the former president of Planned Parenthood that talked about creating a risk budget, and that kind of approach really spoke to me, which is really acknowledging that every activity comes with some risk and trying to assign kind of the amount of risk that the household as a whole is comfortable with. And that way we're intentional about how much risk we quote unquote spend. And I think that's a way to really think about it as a communal thing and a, and a way to discuss it um, that externalizes the conversation as opposed to having it be really personal and between the two partners potentially casting blame one, on one another. It's more of a discussion of how much total risk the household could be comfortable with and what are the activities that we're going to use um, to spend that risk. I think that that approach could be helpful to folks. Well, on that note, let me thank all of our guests. Narjus uh, Zahori Dillon, again, as Executive Director of the Crisis Support Services of Alameda County. Good to have you with us, Nara. Thank you. And I want to thank Dr. Thanks David Spiegel. Us. Narjus, thank you. Also, David Spiegel, Director of the Center on Stress and Health and Professor and Associate Chair of Psychiatry at Stanford. Thank you, David. You're welcome. Glad to be here, Michael. And thank you, Juan Acosta, Assistant Manager of the California Peer Run Warm Line. Thank you, Juan. Thank you for having me. And thanks to Jim Cooler, who we also spoke to, Assistant Deputy Director of Behavioral Health at the California Department of Health Care Services. And for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, thank you, our listeners. Stay safe. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.